I am uh, Chris Cash and the CRG Talks on China podcast is back after a brief hiatus and we're back with a bang today with a, a podcast on a meaty complex topic that has been the, the subject of much debate over the past couple of months. So for context, in early October, the US government rolled out extensive new restrictions on China's access to advanced semiconductors um, and the equipment used to make them. The order by President Biden is unprecedented in modern times and is clearly designed to to cut China's legs off as the US and China compete for technological advantage, which is now very much geopolitical advantage. I'm delighted to be joined today by Sarah Bowley Dansman, an Associate Professor of International Studies at Indiana University and non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council to discuss the reasons behind these restrictions and the knock-on effects around the world. Sarah, great to have you on today. Can you briefly summarize the sweeping restrictions that the US government has placed on China's access to semiconductors? Sure, and thank you, Chris, for inviting me to speak today. So, as you mentioned at the top, these export controls, which we often refer to as the October 7th controls, include kind of three areas of controls. So one are advanced semiconductor chips. And um, there are very specific technical specifications for what is covered in this area, but it's basically um, the top of the top line, especially GPUs or graphic um, processing units. Then you have then you have a series of controls on the equipment needed to manufacture these advanced semiconductor chips. And finally, controls on supercomputing. Now, what makes these controls particularly binding is the fact that they are not only controlling technology and items that have not been controlled before, but they're also doing so in some important novel ways. So one is there is a use of the foreign direct product rule in some of these controls. And uh, MPs may be familiar with the foreign direct product rule because it was, uh, it really skyrocketed to attention during U.S. Um, controls on Huawei. So the foreign direct product rule makes it is an extraterritorial application of um, export controls because it allows the U.S. government to say any item that contains any U.S. technology above a certain threshold, which is very small, is going to be considered a item controlled under these U.S. Um, export controls. And therefore, uh, if any company exports even products, made, items made in other countries, if it has those, um, has that U.S. technology in it, it will be subject to controls. The other thing that these controls do is it changes um, a technical definition of what counts as how U.S. persons may aid or um, contribute to technology production in China. And so it puts restrictions on U.S. persons' abilities to, to work in these areas in China. And for those reasons, th th this is really why we see this slate of controls as being quite restrictive and new in important respects. 
And why is the US going down this route now? And how did we we sort of get here, if that's not too, too dense a question? Um, I guess what I'm getting at is, would it be fair to say that now the US government sort of is simply trying to, to halt China's rise? These new controls perhaps go beyond pure concerns of military use, for example, or narrow definitions of sort of national security risk, all of which have been sort of used to justify US crackdowns on Chinese tech in the in the past. Yes. So the other aspect here that uh, is really important to understand is the rationale behind these controls. And it, I agree with you that it is a broadened um, or, or new way of the U.S. to conceptualize of national security concerns as they relate to technological developments in China. And it's certainly a new application of export controls in terms of what the what the end goal of them is. And so uh, in mid-September of this year, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan gave a speech that got a lot of coverage at an event that had to do with export controls and the future of export controls and technology. And in that speech, he talked about how one of the lessons that we've learned from the sanction coalition against Russia has been how important export controls can be in uh, slowing down and arresting military capabilities in Russia's um, invasion of, of Ukraine. And he was speaking in particular to a um, really important slate of uh, export controls and sanctions on semiconductors into Russia. And I think that basically what happened there is that the U.S. government saw uh, a specific example of how essential um, really strict controls can be in degrading military capabilities. At the same time as this is happening, the U.S. has become increasingly concerned about the enabling environment in China around Kind of emerging technologies that at the moment don't have direct kind of implications or um, or connections with military use in China, but could develop over time into important military capabilities. So uh, when you think about the the uh, these controls, they are really about trying to stymie the kind of the domestic innovation ecosystem in China around these technologies that the US government thinks are going to be really essential to military supremacy and dominance in the future. So if you think about the types of technologies and the types of items that are being controlled here, these are uh, semiconductors that are essential for developing really high-level artificial intelligence, also essential for quantum computing. These are areas that we think are going to be really the cutting edge of military dominance in the future, but we don't quite know how that's going to look. So uh, in many respects, the U.S. is assuming that AI and quantum computing is going to be is going to change 
the kind of or has the capability to change the balance of power from a military perspective, the way that nuclear weapons changed the state of the game um, in, in the 40s. And so the U.S. is making a bet that by uh, cutting China off from the advanced technology that enables advancement in these critical emerging technological spaces, that it is also going to ensure that the U.S. and the Western alliance are going to have, are going to be at the cutting edge of these technologies and be able to control them rather than the Chinese. I think it's really interesting that the, the sort of future military considerations are still sort of at the the forefront of this. I think that's maybe been um, missed in some of the analysis so far. And how have we seen this sort of play out so far? Obviously, it was announced in the beginning of October. Have companies with manufacturing operations in China been forced to react to this new US policy already? And then with a slightly longer lens, I guess, what do you see as the impact impact on China's long-term tech ambitions and whether it could actually really catch up in sort of advanced semiconductor manufacturing. I've seen analysts say that this will set China back kind of 10 years and it's it's already playing catch up with countries like the US and and Korea and Taiwan. Yes. So that's a multi-part complicated question to, to answer because there are so many moving parts. I would say first, to sort of back up a little bit, one of the things about these controls is that they're very complicated. And they were their, their announcement was rather abrupt. And the reasoning given for the abruptness of the announcement and the lack of a kind of draft rule, you know, these were implemented as interim final rules. So they went in, they were basically implemented right away. Way, where normally export controls in the U.S., there's a draft, it receives public comments, then after public comments are received and incorporated, then there's an issuing of a ruling, but also there's kind of a longer term between when the rules are announced and when they actually go into effect. With these controls, they were announced and put into effect pretty much simultaneously. And the reason stated for that was that there was concern that if there was a long lag period between announcement and implementation, that there would just be um, a lot of stockpiling of these chips in China. And so that sort of is the reason why they came about this way. Although uh, if you were in, if you were operating in this area, you knew that they were coming because over the summer, your lawyers were receiving letters from um, our export control administration telling, uh, like warning people that, hey, something is coming. um, So be aware. So there's that. Also, they're complicated because the U.S. government really is trying to separate out the technology that it cares the most about from a kind of national security perspective, even though it's a broader national security perspective. It's not solely a a proliferation um, kind of um, perspective, right, where um, traditionally most U.S. export controls, as well as almost all European controls, are Uh, that items are controlled for um, anti-WMD proliferation reasons. These were controlled for general regional stability. And so, so the U.S. government was trying to 
really pick what are the technologies that we care the most about from this regional stability perspective, from this perspective of trying to prevent uh, the Chinese domestic ecosystem around these really essential uh, technologies for the future of warfare. And make sure that those were controlled, but other types of semiconductor technologies that are less problematic are allowed to continue to be um, produced in China and sold to China. And so that's why these are so complicated. At the same time, it's really hard to do this, right? So there are all of these intricate rules about what counts as a facility that has um, this advanced semiconductor technology, because you can't, under these rules, you can't ship any items to those at the facility level. But if there's a facility that is producing kind of trailing edge chips and advanced chips in the same facility, you can't send them there. But if it's a facility that is just, um, or you can't send anything there, basically, if it's a facility that is just producing trailing edge chips, then there's more that you can that you can send um, to those trailing edge facilities, not the advanced um, items, but other items that are kind of more kind of general to uh, to producing at least kind of lower uh, lower tier semiconductor chips. That is really that was really hard for the U.S. government to figure out how to do that without input from industry, which it didn't get because it didn't have a public comment period. So right now, the uh, the government announced uh, at the time of the uh, imposition of the export controls that. Um, there's a public comment period that was originally supposed to end on December or on today, December 13th, but it was extended to January 31st. And that is a period of time in which it's getting a lot of information from uh, from uh, the industry about what's working, what's not. I know that basically every single uh, company that every single um, semiconductor company um, that's a Western company operating in China has had to apply and has received one-year licenses on the U.S. persons rule here. So that so basically they're being given a transition period to figure out, do we need to close the plant? Can we change what the plant is doing so that that way we can basically have these be plants that are um, only producing trailing edge technology in a way that won't run afoul of the um, export control rules. But I know for sure all U.S. Um, all U.S. semiconductor companies operating in China have had to apply for these. And my understanding is the other major players have as well. There was more to your question, and I think it had to do with what the implications are, but I've been talking for a little bit, so maybe... Yeah, I, I guess the um, impacts on, on China's long-term tech ambitions, I, I think in, it's made in China 2025 planned. Um, Xi Jinping outlined, or the State Council outlined, that, that China aimed to be a sort of tech superpower by the, the middle of the century. Um, and you've mentioned the trailing edge chips, if you like, which China perhaps could still produce and, and build some kind of competitive advantage in, but does this, do these restrictions on advanced semiconductors really sort of kneecap China? Yes, they're devastating. I'm, I'm going to say that they're devastating in the short to medium-ish long-term, 
with if it's just U.S. controls. Um, and that is because U.S. technology is central. You, you cannot currently make the most advanced chips without some amount of U.S. technology in the chip. I mean, the, the semiconductor industry is incredibly global, incredibly disaggregated because it's full of these companies that really highly specialize in different components. Um, and so it, so at least in the short term, any country that has some of that kind of key technology, if they wanted to put a control um, on that, that piece of the puzzle, it could shut things down for a while. And so, so in the short to medium term, without any other interventions by any other um, countries, uh, this is holding, you know, China's at a standstill until it can backfill this technology, this U.S. technology with other, uh, with technology that um, comes from other countries. Now, whether this is a truly long-term kind of arresting of Chinese capabilities here, that's where we start to get into conversations about how much these, how multilateralized these controls become over time. We have seen reports in the news that suggest that the Dutch and the Japanese are going to jump on board with these uh, controls. That if that does come to fruition, that's a really big deal because if any country is in the position to backfill U.S. technology, it would be those countries. And so um, if they join in on this export control regime, that will really mean that um, China won't have good options for how to find other kind of co companies that are based in other countries that could possibly kind of um, over the medium term find a way to um, provide some of these advanced chips without any U.S. technology in it. And could you maybe briefly explain why the, the Netherlands and Japan are sort of so important in, in semiconductor supply chains? Yeah, so the, the Dutch story has to do with ASML, um, which I'm sure that um, most MPs will have heard of before because it, it's constantly in the news these days. And this is um, about very advanced lithography um, machines. So the way, so this is basically a way to print all of the um, circuits onto a semiconductor. Uh, and semiconductors have billions of, of um, transistors on them. And this is this has to do with Moore's law and kind of we're cramming more and more information onto um, each little chip. And the 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 um, most advanced semiconductors, sometimes you'll hear, you know, like 15 nanometers or seven nanometers or five nanometers, which is considered the most cutting edge at this point in time. And that has to do with the space between like uh, that there are five nanometers um, of space in between um, the rows of transistors on a chip. And when you're getting that, that small, you need to have incredibly precise machines that are printing this onto the chip. And ASML is the, is the company in the world that has the most advanced um, machine to do this. And it's um, these ultra... Um, um, violet lithography machines. Uh, and so that 
that machine took 30 years to develop and has like a hundred thousand parts in it. And some of those parts actually, like there are some parts of it that are that rest on US technology. Um, but ASML has said that they're kind of that they are immune, they think that most of their um items are kind of not affected by the US controls because controls are very, very precise and there have all of these very specific technical specifications about what fits under the control and what doesn't. And so there was this sort of question about whether or not, whether or not uh, ASML's most advanced machines would um, be covered under this, under these rules or not. But the Dutch closing this, close, the Dutch coming into the sanction coalition, you know, closes that um, conversation entirely and makes it makes it certain that that those types of machines will not be able to be sent to China. And for kind of similar reasons having to do with the uh, with the very advanced tools around creating um, this kind of uh, semiconductor chip. Um, Japan is the other country uh, in the system that has the most advanced, is the most advanced along these lines. And so those two countries coming into a sanctions coalition would just mean that it would take much longer to develop a chip, an advanced chip that um, is is immune to these kinds of controls um, because uh, it's really the Dutch and the Japanese that are the closest to being able to design out U.S. technology from these advanced chips. Yeah, I find it interesting that the diplomacy on this seemed to to, to be a, a bit delayed, and there was this quite public uh, spat, maybe too strong, but verbal jousting with, with the Dutch initially not very happy about maybe their own interests being being trampled on. But uh, as you said, re- reports seem to to show that there've been sort of positive discussions, if you like, on this over the the last couple of days, and that um, like minded partners are becoming more aligned on this issue of export controls. You, you said that the controls would be devastating for China. So, so this seems like Beijing, this seems like something Beijing wouldn't take lying down necessarily. Or could Beijing feasibly retaliate with restrictions of its own? I, I saw it launched a, a suit against the, 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 the US at the WTO yesterday, although I think there's some sort of national security exemption to the WTO. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, but there's also been talk of China placing tariffs or embargoes on in areas like rare earths, where it controls so much of the sort of midstream processing. How, how do you see Beijing's response and uh, and the route it might go down? Yeah, so the fact that the PRC has not engaged in really much of any retaliation around the ratcheting up of export controls, which has been going on for you know several years at this point, has been the fact that they haven't done this yet has been, I think, surprising to many uh, watchers of this area. Kind of, I think we're all sort of worried that the other shoe might drop, so to speak, but. If you try to step into the strategic kind of thinking from a PRC perspective, part of what gives them strength is integrating into and be integrating into these global supply chains so that they become such an integral part that it would be devastating to be cut off from them. And so that limits what 
I think they'll be willing to do in this respect, right? When you think about what they could possibly retaliate with within the semiconductor industry, um, you know, they might put tariffs or embargoes on low-end chips, but the U.S. and the U.K. and the EU are all right now working to reshore this type of chip production anyway. So it kind of doesn't, you know, it might create some short-term disruptions, but long-term that brings, that actually would work to the benefit of what the strategy in much of the West is around um, semiconductor supply chains. On the perspective of rare earths, it's kind of a similar story. So this is one area where China has been willing in the past to um, implement some strategic embargoes, most importantly against Japan um, in um, 2012, I believe. And those that watch this space very carefully are, are worried about the fact that China really controls rare earth um, processing. And these critical minerals um, are important parts of the semiconductor supply chain, as well as the uh, battery supply chain. And this is one of the reasons why industrial policy in the US, um, as well as in Europe, has centered a lot on trying to find new solutions to, to the rare earth supply chain that does not include China. Um, so uh, I know that most of the world is angry at the U.S. right now because of the Inflation Reduction Act, and I understand that, right? But the, a lot of the frustration is around the, uh, the subsidies to the uh, electric um, vehicles and how they need to be, and the local content requirements around that. But the reason for that rule is that it's trying to stimulate uh, U.S. production uh, of uh, critical minerals in order to reduce dependence on, on China. Um, so I'm hopeful that there can be some diplomacy to find ways to collaborate across the Atlantic Ocean on this issue. Um, but we also see that Australia has been a key touch point of trying to um, move away from, or to, to develop um, critical mineral mining and um, processing in Australia. We've seen that in Canada in recent weeks, the Canadians um, have required the Chinese to divest from three critical mineral mines. Um, and also the Canadians are now talking about uh, re, kind of um, reaffirming and strengthening their investment screening mechanism, largely um, to make sure that they are, you know, Canada is a, a good source of critical minerals. And so making sure that its uh, mechanism can protect that from um, problematic investment. And so for those reasons, kind of, I think the reticence on the, um, on the Chinese side is that they benefit from a global system in which they are deeply integrated into it um, because they want, uh, they want the rest of the world to be reliant on them. And so the tools available to them to retaliate are tools that over time will 
reduce reliance on them. And so it's a complicated uh, complicated thing for them to sort of uh, work through. And so I think that's the reason why we haven't seen more assertiveness on their part on these issues. Right, that geopolitical leverage could diminish um, pretty quickly. And um, just to finish there, quite a, a broad question. So um, take it wherever you like. But I, I want to touch upon the sort of implications of, I guess, this acceleration of the the balkanization of, of global value ch- change, particularly in strategic industries. And it, it could be argued that um, measures such as export controls will have a, a sort of detrimental impact on global innovation and, and sort of important tech collaboration, um, as well as potentially stunting other areas uh, of transnational cooperation with, with huge issues like climate change uh, so your thoughts on that would be great and whether semiconductor manufacturing could ever be truly reignited in the the us and and europe given how globalized supply chains now uh, are now and the sort of structural advantages that that countries in in east asia for example have when it comes to semiconductors sorry i know that's a huge question but um yeah take it where you want yeah it is a huge question but it's the question of the day and i think that we are in a very precarious place as a global community right now, because you're absolutely right that kind of the the main existential problem that we all face is climate change. And that requires technological innovation that is most likely to proceed as quickly as possible and at the scale necessary to have true implications when there is quite a lot of cooperation and coordination. And so it is it is concerning that at the time where we really need the most um, scientific um, technological collaboration around these key areas that we're seeing a a national security impulse to um, create more barriers to that kind of collaboration. At the same time, over the past decade in particular, I think the US and many other capitals have been have seen the developments in Xi's China and have been very concerned about a much more assertive revisionist China than what we've seen in the past. And and so and so there are kind of competing issues here that need to be balanced quite um, carefully. I think that it's clear that there's going to be areas that are off limits for collaboration, at least between the US and the China market. And I don't see that changing in the near future. Um, I do think that having um, as much collaboration among allies and partners over these issues is central and key to being able to um, prevent these kinds of controls leading to a decline in technological innovation that's necessary to, uh, to stave off the worst of climate change. Um, and also the kind of more quotidian issues of what happens to uh, local livelihoods and polities in um, times of high inflation? Because we're restructuring supply chains and that creates inflation on top of the inflation that we're already seeing. And that can have very devastating effects as well. So I think doing all that we can to encourage 
Um, cooperation among partners and allies is super important here. And I also think that we need to be really thoughtful about the ways in which these kind of tools of um, geoeconomic competition and statecraft intersect with one another. The Inflation Reduction Act or other forms of industrial policy is a great case in point of how even when you're trying to do something for, you know, relatively noble purposes, uh, it, that they they interact in important ways with your partners and allies, and that you need to have really strong channels of communication. Um, your point about kind of can the U.S. and other um, advanced economies in Europe really be fully um, independent on um, it, within the context of semiconductors? I don't think that that is a a goal worth pursuing. I think that the uh, that instead there should be a focus on really building up. Um, a strong alliance that also protects against um, technology um, within that alliance um, diffusing into countries of concern like China and really thinking about how do we create resilient supply chains within that alliance. You don't have to be completely independent. In fact, having supply chains that have um, you know, really reliable partners is can build up the 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 strength of the supply chain as long as you um, kind of build it out in a way where you're not overly reliant on one facility, for example. And so that's what I think the partners and allies um, across the Atlantic and also the Pacific should be focusing on uh, as they move forward over these next few years. Yeah, I think resilient seems to be the sort of buzzword for foreign policy focused MPs at the moment, but there's still a bit of confusion and disagreement over what that looks like on a, a more granular level, I think. Well, Sarah, it was a, a fascinating uh, conversation this afternoon. I've certainly learned lots. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming on the Talks on China podcast today. Thank you very much, Chris, for inviting me. And it was a fantastic conversation. And, uh, you know, this is the, the most important issue in many respects uh, for uh, politicians across the world to be focused on. So I thank your listeners also for their attention to these important issues of policy. 